Welcome to another edition of Health Affairs This Week, the podcast where health affairs editors talk about health policy news and issues. I'm Chris Fleming, and today I'm joined once again by health affairs contributing editor Katie Keith. Katie provides the rapid response blogging on all things ACA and health reform and health affairs blog, and she also writes the Eye on Health Reform column for the journal. Katie's an adjunct professor at the Georgetown University Law Center, and she was recently named Director of the Health Policy and Law Initiative at the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law at Georgetown. Congratulations, Katie, and welcome. Thanks, Chris. You can't get rid of me. (laughs) We wouldn't want to. We wouldn't want to. Uh, So earlier this year, at the end of the last Supreme Court term, the Affordable Care Act survived its third and maybe last existential legal challenge with the court's decision in California v. Texas. That, of course, things being the way they are, doesn't mean that litigation about the ACA or even litigation before the Supreme Court about the ACA has stopped. This term, uh, the part of the ACA that seems to have taken center stage is Section 1557. That's the ACA's, as you know, the ACA's primary equity and non-discrimination provision and the court scheduled arguments for two cases involving that section of the law this fall. Yep, that's right, Chris. Um, So Section 1557 is... It's an incredibly important provision in the Affordable Care Act, uh, and it's what, what to me, really makes the law a civil rights law. Uh, in addition to all the changes that the Affordable Care Act has meant for the health system, these, these are new civil rights protections in health care. Uh, and so what Section 1557 does, and 1557 is just a reference to the actual section of the statute itself, uh, it bars um, federally funded health programs and activities from discriminating based on race, color, national origin, disability, or sex. And the way that the statute works, it refers to existing federal civil rights statutes, uh, for example, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act for disability or Title IX of the Education Amendments for sex, and really incorporates them and applies them more broadly to health care. Um, one of the things we almost always end up talking about on Section 1557, but that we won't be talking about today, uh, those sex non-discrimination protections were applied to health care for the first time. So there's always a lot of discussion there, but we're actually talking about different parts of Section 1557 today. That's right. Uh, And one of those uh, things that we want to talk about, one question under Section 1557 and some of these other existing statutes is when someone feels like they've been discriminated against and sues, uh, what they might be entitled to in terms of damages. Now, the Supreme Court will consider that issue in the first case we're going to talk about today, uh, Cummings v. Premier Rehab Keller, which is scheduled uh, for argument before the court on November 30th, I believe. In that case, you have Jane Cummings, who is is deaf and legally blind, and she sued a physical therapy provider, Premier Rehab Keller, because they refused to provide her with an American Sign Language interpreter to help uh, in treating her chronic back pain. Now, Cummings alleged that this uh, discriminated against her based on her disability in violation of the Rehab Act and Section 1557. Katie, I'm hoping you could talk about uh, what happened after that, what Uh, Jane Cummings asked for when she sued uh, that created the legal issue that the court plans to address in this case. Yeah. So when Jane sued, she uh, did something that normally happens under non-discrimination statutes. She asked for compensation or what we call damages, uh, including for, you know, for all of her harms, including the emotional distress that was caused by her experience and not being able to get the care that she needed 
uh, because the translator was never made available to her. So the courts have long held that you can receive what we call uh, compensatory damages for discrimination. That makes sense. Um, and that often, you know, that includes the economic injuries that you might face because of the discrimination as well as non-economic injuries from humiliation, from the mental suffering, from sort of the psychological effects that come with being discriminated. And I, I don't think we have to go into a lot of detail. I think that's pretty obvious that, uh, you know, someone who's been discriminated against faces those types of injuries. Um, I think the, the sort of emotional distress or kind of the, the psychological harms from discrimination, it also provides a deterrent effect knowing that you could be sued for those kinds of injuries, um, even though we know that the damages can't be punitive. Uh, and so this is what the case is, this case is really about. So courts have widely recognized that you can include emotional distress damages when you sue under civil rights statutes. Uh, in this case, though, you had a district court in Texas uh, say that Jane was not entitled to those damages, that she couldn't even sue for emotional distress. Uh, that case went up to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. They agreed, saying Jane can't, can't ask for emotional distress damages. Um, and, you know, again, it's sort of longstanding precedent that you can. And we have other appellate courts like the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals that have held otherwise uh, and really reached the opposite conclusion there. So um, this is now going to be uh, on the docket for the Supreme Court. Like you said, we'll hear oral arguments soon. Um, for what it's worth, you know, the Biden administration has weighed in in favor of Jane's position, uh, joined by, you know, disability advocates, civil rights groups and others. And then on the other side, uh, the physical therapy group. Uh, briefs have been filed on, you know, in support of their position by a coalition of Republican attorneys general, the National Conference of State Legislatures, and the Chamber of Commerce. Whatever the court rules here is likely going to affect the interpretation of other civil rights statutes as well. So it's, I think it's a big case to be watching. Now, uh, let's move on to the second uh, 1557 case on the court schedule, uh, CVS Pharmacy v. Doe. Now, that case was originally set for argument in December, but it won't be heard in the, uh, as of now because CVS withdrew its appeal. But it's worth talking about the case anyway because the underlying legal issue that's at play still very much alive and important. Uh, the lawsuit was filed by uh, people living with HIV who argued that CVS had improperly restricted access to certain HIV meds by requiring patients to use a mail or CVS pharmacy as opposed to their local community pharmacy if they wanted to get uh, in-network uh, rates for the drugs. Now, these uh, restrictions, the plaintiff said, prevented them from consulting with their local pharmacy, then invaded their patient privacy by uh, sending HIV meds through the mail. Now, the key here is that when the plaintiff sued, they argued that uh, CVS's restrictions disproportionately harmed them as people living with HIV. In other words, they made what's known as a disparate impact claim. Uh, now, Katie, can you talk a little bit about what uh, what that term means, how a disparate impact claim differs from a claim of intentional discrimination, and why it matters, why it might be important? Yeah, thanks, Chris. And uh, I'm probably going to dramatically oversimplify here, but I think it's it's okay for our purposes. So I tend to think of there being kind of two types of, two main types of discrimination. Um, so the first is what we tend to think about is sort of intentional discrimination um, against someone because of their race or because of their gender. Um, and, you know, there's a huge history uh, of this within the healthcare system. You know, hospitals were segregated between black and white patients for a long time. It really wasn't until creation of the Medicare program and Title VI of the Civil Rights Act where you started to see some of the more, you know, blatant, uh, intentionally discriminatory policies um, 
fall out of favor. And, you know, it was, it was formally barred. And, you know, those new laws required desegregation of medical facilities and help save lives. And, um, of course, that said, uh, the legacy of racism in the medical system is strong. Um, and, you know, all kinds of other discrimination as well. And we know that there are still problems. So that's sort of the, the intentional disparate treatment discrimination where I'm discriminating against you uh, intentionally based on a protected class or protected factor. Um, the second type, and this is the type that's more at issue in this case, uh, is what you you said at Chris, we call it disparate impact discrimination. So this is this is a little bit, um, I think, more challenging to understand, but folks will, will get it. Uh, this is where a policy disproportionately affects, say, Black patients or patients with a disability, even if the policy isn't targeted at that population and there's no intent to discriminate. Um, it's super important to address both types, both the intentional and the disparate impact, if we care about things like racial justice and health equity and um, just non-discrimination writ large. And that's because I think, you know, the way that discrimination shows up in healthcare these days, it's changed over time. Um, we have, you know, moved in most cases, not entirely, but in most cases moved away from blatant overt discrimination to more subtle and seemingly neutral policies that can still discriminate. And that's where disparate impact comes in. And just to put maybe an example to that so folks have it in their head, you know, disability discrimination, you know, in most cases, it's not because people want to hurt someone with a disability. It's because of society, the way we, things have been built, right? It's not having access to ramps or elevators or websites that can be used by blind people, right? It's, it's sort of an oversight. It's not um, purposely discriminatory, but in practice, in effect, it discriminates uh, and prevents full and equal access for people with disabilities. Uh, can you maybe pull that back and talk about uh, why that matters in the lawsuit that we started just now talking about CVS v. Doe? Yeah, perfect. So, you know, it, you said it. In this case, the the patients argue that CVS's pharmacy policies uh, disproportionately affected people with HIV and thus discriminate on the basis of disability. Uh, one little bit wonky piece of this case is that CVS asked the Supreme Court to take up two questions. Uh, the first is whether federal law, both the Rehabilitation Act and by extension, Section 1557, um, whether those laws allow disparate impact lawsuits to be filed for disability discrimination. Uh, that's the first question. The second question they wanted the court to hear was, if so, you know, how and whether this applies to kind of facially neutral terms and conditions of health insurance plans. So can you have disparate impact claims in the first place? And if so, does that apply to neutral health insurance policies? Uh, so those are the two questions that they put before the court. And I think CVS was mostly interested in the second question of, you know, how does would this affect our health insurance plans and what does this mean for us as an industry? Um, but the court only agreed to hear the first question. And that really set up kind of a showdown uh, on whether federal law allows disparate impact claims for disability, period. And so that, I think, set off a lot of alarm bells and um, disability advocates and other civil rights advocates became understandably, you know, I think very concerned about how the court might rule here. Um, you know, a ruling to say that disparate impact discrimination is not recognized, it really could have gutted Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act and, you know, potentially had implications for the Americans with Disabilities Act. And so advocates, you know, in many different ways, uh, really pushed and urged CBS to withdraw the appeal. I think this is another example of um, the disability community being real heroes <laughs> when it comes to health policy. Um, they played a huge role in the 
attempts to repeal and, and push back against um, changes to the Affordable Care Act in 2017, if folks remember, um, and CBS agreed. So they, they made that announcement in a sort of a joint statement with disability advocates on November 10th saying, you know, we're going to work together on solutions. Uh, we understand what was at stake for the, the disability rights movement in this court case, and we're not going to pursue it anymore. Well, thanks, Katie. Uh, and uh, I want to mention, uh, I want to get to a couple of uh, additional cases before we end. Uh, first, very briefly, the court is still considering whether to take a case that was filed by several Republican state attorneys general, arguing that the federal government has to reimburse states for attacks that the ACA imposed on health insurance providers, including Medicaid managed care organizations. Yeah, I mean, that's right. Um, you know, this was a, a case from Judge Reed O'Connor in, in the district court um, that was initially overturned by the Fifth Circuit. And now Texas, um, Judge O'Connor had ruled that the this group of states was entitled to about $500 million in, you know, repaid health insurance tax money that he, they, you know, he thought they shouldn't have had to spend. Um, and so we'll see. Uh, if the court's going to take that, it focuses on legal issues like non-delegation doctrine and, you know, whether the regulations should refer to the American Academy of Actuaries and all these types of um, arguments. It'll be pretty interesting to see if the, the court takes this one. Uh, let's uh, let me just ask before we end anything else uh, that we should flag for our listeners regarding the Supreme Court. I mean, always. So I would be remiss if I didn't at least mention, of course, the Supreme Court scheduled to hear a, a case known as the, you know, the Dobbs case. Um, this is, you know, a challenge to a Mississippi law that would ban abortions after 15 weeks. And um, most observers think this is, you know, could be a vehicle to undo or at least severely undermine, you know, longstanding precedent like Roe versus Wade or Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Uh, this is coming hot on the heels of oral argument over the Texas law um, known as SB8 on abortion restrictions there. Uh, so the the court will the court heard the Texas litigation uh, on November 1st, I think, and uh, they'll follow up with the Dobbs oral argument on December 1st. So there's a lot of uh, attention and activity on abortion. And then there's also two much wonkier, but potentially very important cases on Medicare reimbursement policy. So one addresses disproportionate share hospital payments, the others on 340B payments, and those will be heard back to back on November 29th and 30th. Um, and well, and last but not least, we're still kind of waiting to see what the court will do with the still pending litigation over Medicaid work requirements, uh, which feels like a throwback, but is uh, still an issue that's live before the court in theory. Uh, I am hoping that that will be resolved by the end of the year, though. That That's a handful, certainly. Um, well, uh, thanks, Katie. I want to uh, tell our listeners uh, to watch Health Affairs blog for coverage by Katie and others of the cases we've mentioned today, as well as the uh, universe, the vast universe of other litigation uh, that's out there addressing the, the ACA and various aspects of health policy. Uh, so that's it. Going to be it for today. Katie, thank you for joining us. As always. Thanks, Chris. Uh, and if you like what you hear, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And we'll see you again on Friday, December 3rd. <laughs>